Hello everyone, this is Kisa Shreen and welcome to our special Climate Week episode. We're gonna discuss the landscape of climate research, what's happening now in policy, the need to incorporate this type of research and this insight into investment decisions and the regulatory landscape as well as disclosure. A lot of great insight today and we're going to be discussing this with Sarah Bratton. Head of Sustainability North America at Schroeder's Investment Management, and Elena Filipova, Refinitiv's Global Head of ESG. Now, we know that climate change is certainly part of the central issues we're discussing in 2020. For example, there is talk about climate change in context of the pandemic, how one may impact the other. Also, climate change and environmental injustice, especially in underserved communities, is a topic that is finally front and center. Now, Elena, what are your views about what we're seeing broadly around environmental policy changes in the EU, and what are the global impacts of those changes? Thanks, Kisa, and hello, everyone. Um, I think it's important to start by saying that the potential costs and risks of climate change are of concern to stakeholders around the globe. And like other challenges um, that we face, including the global COVID pandemic and the push for human rights and equality, the problems are very much systematic in nature. Um, so it's, it's really a um, team effort and it does require different stakeholders to come out of the sidelines and step up their game. Um, that's what European regulators really um, uh, decided to do a few years ago, when in 2018 the Commission announced a very comprehensive and arguably the most ambitious till date action plan on financing sustainable growth based on the recommendations made by um, a group of experts called HLEC. The action covers 10 different actions spanning across the full value chain of capital markets, um, aiming to enable and enforce the shift of both public and private financial flows towards a sustainable economy. And through these measures, the European Union, the European regulators believe that um, it will enable to sustain economic and social prosperity in the future. Um, there are different components mentioned of the action plan, um, and many are in progress, but probably worth mentioning um, two of them. The first is the European uh, taxonomy, which is a foundation, foundational block um, of the action plan on financing sustainable growth. And what it is in very simple terms is a classification tool that aims to help investors as well as companies consistently determine whether an economic activity is environmentally sustainable or not. It provides very specific quantitative thresholds on the environmental performance of um, economic activities to be considered compliant with the taxonomy. Um, the second piece of, of the regulatory movement led by um, Europe is the disclosure regulation, and this impacts both financial institutions and disclosure about um, consideration of negative adverse impacts um, into capital allocation decisions, as well as disclosure requirements at a product level for products branded as sustainable products. Um, and within the next five to 10 years, my personal opinion is that this will be how capital markets will operate globally, 
uh, probably in different phases around the world, but this will become um, business as usual for everyone. What we see really happening in the EU will impact global disclosure requirements and asset managers globally will have to, um, to follow um, these tools and requirements as they do have license to operate in the EU as well. So we're talking a lot about these, um, what's going on in the EU, how it's going to impact globally. Sarah, at least in the U.S., we're really not seeing it yet. Could you give us some background and insight into what we're seeing around recent U.S. policy and how it might impact us in the future? Great. Thank you, Kisa, and thank you to the audience for today. Um, yes, just a couple comments on the, the EU initiative from a U.S. perspective. I think what is being a little bit missed here in the U.S. is that all major asset managers that have that license to distribute in Europe and have over 500 employees are going to have to um, abide by the EU policy rules, uh, which will result in increased uh, demand from asset managers, they'll be asking more of their companies in terms of disclosure. And if I just take a step back, um, looking at ESG regulation globally, not just the EU, I feel like the EU gets a lot of the headlines, but globally, in 2017, we had just over 110 EU um, regulations at, regarding ESG policy. Since then, that has doubled. Um, to 2019, that number has doubled. And most of that policy is supportive of integrating uh, ESG into investment decisions. Uh, here in the US, that's not the case right now. We've had a little bit of a cold shower put on uh, ESG integration in terms of what we've seen come out uh, of the, the DOL uh, in the past two months built on um, the efficacy of integrating ESG into investment processes and, and thinking about it in terms of sacrificing returns, which is uh, not what ESG integration is at all. Uh, it's a very inclusionary approach today. It's about getting better long-term risk-adjusted returns. Um, and then just recently, we've seen uh, the DOL come out um, and challenge on the proxy voting side, um, having plans, ERISA plans vote on environmental and social issues. From that perspective, we've had sort of this tail, uh, this headwind on ESG adaption here in the US. What I will say is that that could change very quickly uh, depending on the upcoming ele election cycle where you have the Biden-Harris campaign, which has come out um, and has a history of being uh, a lot more in favor of climate justice and some of the um, initiatives that are on the table, uh, particularly the Climate Equity Act that uh, Harris announced just five days prior to her VP nomination. Uh, there's no irony in that for me. So let's go from there to talk directly about the investor community. Why is this, this statement true? Investors can no longer ignore climate change in terms of how they go about investing. Talk to us about that statement. So from for our perspective, climate change is one of the key structural events that's going to evolve over the coming years. And we are long-term investors here at Schroeder's. And for us, integrating climate change into our investment decisions are all about identifying those long-term structural trends that are going to change and that will result for better risk-adjusted returns for our clients. All of these events are intricately linked. 
whether it's pandemics, whether it's climate change, um, whether it's global inequality. And these problems are too big for us to ignore. And we have to be honest with each other. It's gonna take private capital to solve these problems. And from a risk perspective, if you think about it, many of us have our assets are locked up into long terms, whether it's our retirement plans, whether it's our 401ks. What we're going to see evolve in terms of climate and climate change and climate policy and climate action, um, it's just too big for us to want our asset managers to ignore given the long-term holding periods that many of us have in our retirement assets. Great, so moving from there, let's talk about the tools, the research tools that investment teams can use, can incorporate into their allocation strategies to meet their needs. So from our perspective, it's a little bit too simplistic just to look at um, a company's carbon footprint to assess their climate risk. Uh, there's no silver bullet to um, there's no silver bullet to assessing from climate risk. You have to look at it at a multiple different angles. So we've developed a very broad toolkit for how we look at sustainability. First, starting with our climate progress dashboard, which is measuring the speed and scale of change across four major indicators. And it's really trying to assess that timing question and what the progress we are making is towards the um, Paris goals. And then we've developed a, cool, a toolkit to help us understand what if, what would be the investment implications um, of whether it is a carbon tax, whether it's stranded assets, what would be those investment implications? And, and how do you turn that into investment tools? And how do you get investors really on board to assess it? Well, you have to turn it into the language that investors speak, which is data and dollars. It's very rare that an investor uh, speaks in carbon footprint. So you take that carbon footprint, you assess, you turn that into a model that would assess what would the impact be to this company's profitability if say carbon was taxed at $100 a ton. Um, and then you're turning that into the language that investors speak, which is dollars. Uh, we've also developed a physical risk model to help us assess stranded asset risk, but it's not just about corporates. And I think many people are always focused on corporates. You have to assess all of your investments. So we have a country sustainability dashboard that looks about at country climate risk. And here in the US, we've actually developed a muni sustainability dashboard that looks across all 31 hundred counties here assessing their sustainability risk. Um, on the climate side, we're looking at both physical risk. So it, what's their risk to tornadoes, hurricanes, flood, um, a, a number of factors, but we're also looking at well-being risk, understanding what the water quality is, what the air quality is. Um, so looking at all of these, trying to find, build a holistic toolkit to look at climate risk across all of our investments rather than simply just looking at a, something like a carbon footprint. Great. I, I love that the investors speak data and dollars, not carbon footprint. There's a lesson to be learned there. So we're great, gaining greater awareness around the climate issues on the investor side, as well as how to literally speak the language that we need to use to convey these issues. At the same time, it's important to gain awareness about what's going on on the regulatory side. Elena, could you dive a bit more into the expectations for the future in terms of regulations? 
Sure. Um, for all of us, for the world, really, to avoid the world's consequences, the world the worst consequences of climate change and other systematic challenges. Um, consumption behaviors needs to change. So consumers, businesses, regulators really need to get off um, the passive um, sidelines, observing what's happening and act only when it's too late and contribute boldly with the right sense of urgency. And, and as mentioned, we do see some of those actions um, happening and taking shape. Um, some industries are already advanced in terms of transformation. There is great sustainability, climate leadership emerging from across the full economy. Um, and these different stakeholders embarking on this transformative journey um, really is leading and um, causing um, a much more focus from a corporate standpoint of view on climate change, better understanding of the implications, and thus improved disclosure on um, climate impacts, both in terms of the impact that businesses have on the environment, as well as the impact environment um, and environmental changes and challenges have on businesses and their ability to deliver um, superior performance to different stakeholders. Um, as I mentioned, I, I do believe that within the next five um, to 10 years, sustainability will be how um, capital markets and the financial industry in particular operates, but broadly speaking, how the economy operates. And in some regions, um, I do expect to see that happening sooner, primarily led by um, mandatory regulatory compliance requirements that will be put in place. In other regions, it may take longer, but we shouldn't forget that the challenges that these initiatives, this um, um, regulatory text um, and um, principles that are put forward are aiming to solve for uh, global um, problems that um, the, the economy and the society is facing. Um, and I think it's, it's also interesting to look at data and what data tells us. I love that, particularly focusing on how these mandatory requirements in the future are going to help to lead us to solve these global issues, societal issues. Sarah, what are your views about the progress that corporations have already made toward climate goals, if we want to look at the glass half full here? I think that there's definitely been significant progress on disclosure. I think we still need to see some progress on actual action. Um, but I just want to hit on some of the points that Elena said on the demand side and move it back um, to investor demand and end client demand. The demand is there and the demand is broadening. Uh, it's broadening from a demographic and a geographic perspective. So if I think about it just sitting here in the US, uh, we are definitely seeing additional demand from clients, questions around it. it ESG sustainability climate risk comes up in almost 75% of our conversations here in the US now. That number is probably close to 100% in Europe. And we're also seeing it in pockets of South America as well as Asia, uh, where you're really seeing some of these countries from a policy perspective, uh, try to jump ahead and rebuild uh, 
a more cleaner economy, but from a demand perspective, from an end client perspective, we're continuing to see that grow. And when I said across demographics, I find this one to be one of the most interesting. We release a global investor survey every single year. And every year, historically, it has been the women or the millennials that um, had the most demand in sustainable investing and climate change investing. We saw a shift in 2019 where Gen X, which is the population above the millennials, really jumped ahead to in the survey saying that they wanted more options. They wanted more funds where they could contribute to a more sustainable future. My personal opinion is because Gen X has a was old enough to have their own children, French children, uh, nieces and nephews that were out protesting for the climate change protests right along Greta. And they really looked at themselves and said, we want to be more sustainable. We want to leave a more sustainable future for our children and our children's children. And I'd be interesting, I'm always interested in seeing the results of, of this year's survey as we've seen the pandemic hit here, we've seen the protests around inequality in the US, we will see climate once again come to the forefront. Um, and what we've seen is all of these issues are intricately linked, often hitting the most vulnerable in society. So I'll be interested to see as we have this culmination of issues coming together, um, particularly alongside the election here in the US, how this will play out and what the demand patterns will continue to be growing in the future. Thank you for that. Elena, the future, what is the future in terms of corporate disclosure? Where do you see the greatest progress happening around this type of disclosure as we head into the next few years? Yeah, I mean, in terms of progress that companies are making, I um, couldn't agree uh, more with um, Sarah mentioning that there is a lot of progress in terms of intentions, commitments. So our job of at least raising awareness, uh, ringing the, the urgency bell has worked. Companies are certainly noticing um, that. And um, if we look at data, um, what we see is that a lot more companies are now not only setting um, generic policies and commitments towards the issue of climate change or generic targets, they are starting to set very specific measurable science-based targets as well for reduction. Um, about 30% of the companies in our universe set um, some sort of a measurable reduction target. Um, some, um, I assume companies that are really starting the journey will set um, small targets in the likes of 5%, 6%, 7% for a short period of time, so usually for the next year, to really um, start working on the agenda in terms of actual actions and implementation. Um, other companies that are more mature and have been on this journey for a while do set more ambitious longer-term reduction targets like 30% by uh, 2025 or 50% by 2030. Um, and I think that it's, it's also worth highlighting here that uh, the uh, European uh, commitment um, to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, this is the first global commitment to reach carbon neutrality. Um, and it is 
part of uh, the uh, Paris Agreement agenda and commitments that um, all nations, with uh, minor exceptions, committed to. Um, so that cannot happen in isolation. It really needs to start with the uh, with consumers, with businesses, and with uh, capital allocation decisions made by both the private and the public sector. Um, but agree that there is still a gap in terms of actual deliverables, actual actions. Um, to give you an example, um, also in terms of disclosure gaps, um, within the Refinitiv ESG database, which represents more than 80% of global market capitalization, um, around 60% of the companies still do not disclose their direct CO2 emissions, scope one emissions which is arguably the easiest and the, the the information and data that companies already have easily at hand. And it's a matter of just making it publicly available to stakeholders. When we look further down into indirect emissions, scope two or even scope three emissions, the disclosure is dramatically reduced. From For the last five years, what we've actually observed, uh, for example, across scope three emissions is the um, disclosure on scope three emissions have, has improved from about 25% of the companies to about 30. Although these numbers sound very high, actually vast majority of these disclosure is incomplete. And um, for investments uh, in, uh, to consider it at scale across large portfolios, the data needs to be standardized and comparable. Um, and mm. as we remove all of these incomplete numbers, we're really looking at very low single-digit um, percentages. And that is insufficient for proper integration of climate risk into investment decisions. So we do expect and, and hope to see in the next couple of years uh, a lot broader um, agreement um, on standards and standardization in terms of what companies are expected and frankly speaking should be mandated to disclose um, on the issue of climate change, but ESG broadly speaking. Um, so there is an urgent need for a single commonly accepted set of ESG metrics and this is really now a priority. Wow, so many key takeaways here. First of all, the European regulatory movement is in full swing. Action planning in Europe is enabling the shift of flows toward sustainable economies. Um, the global ESG regulation also is following suit. We're, we've seen increase in ESG policy supporting the integration of ESG into investment decisions. We know that it will take private capital to help us solve these issues as well as the other sources. And there's no silver bullet in assessing climate risk. We understand that there is importance in speaking in the same language that investors speak, which is data and dollars. So tools are being created to speak in this way so investors really understand the benefits. Countries are focused on building cleaner economies and companies are setting more science-based targets Although we need to see more complete disclosure and standardization and comparable data, data is the way to get us there. So interconnectedness of climate change, as well as other key societal and justice issues, continue to be really front running some of this conversation. 
And as always, end client demand is really important. And we see in climate demand now broadening in the demographic area as well as geographically. Sarah Bratton and Elena Filipova, thank you so much for a great conversation. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. Thank you for joining. See you next time.